welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Episode 32 of Why Make is a bonus make as we continue our conversation with Adam Manley and talk about his 2018 solo exhibition, Ordinary Rendition. Initially exhibited in Indianapolis, Indiana, Ordinary Rendition looks at a present and future in which exposure to violence and complacency bring violent torture into the home. What at first appear to be trendy Danish modern-inspired furniture and accessories are anything but what they seem. So grit your teeth as we tighten the thumbscrews and talk with Adam about the origins of this subtle yet brutally blunt project. Okay, so we're uh, back here with Adam Manley, and this is a bonus make session that we're going to talk with Adam's, what, it was 2018 exhibition? And where, where exactly did that exhibition happen? Did it happen at San Diego State? No, the first exhibition, I originally made this work for a show at the Indianapolis Art Center. A really cool space uh, that apparently was like originally built as a um, like a New Deal project for like regional arts programming and has turned into a pretty cool both regional and national exhibition space. Right. So the title of this show is Ordinary Rendition. And of course, it is a play off Extraordinary Rendition which is, uh, I guess, how do you put it nicely? It's the process of kidnapping people and torturing them, which uh, I, I don't, when did that term, that term really didn't come into the lexicon until the Iraq war. Yeah, this is a Bush, this is a Bush era term, basically. This is a Bush era term. So this is the whole notion of, uh, and I will give my, my butcher definition of it and then let you go for it. But the whole idea of taking furniture which is used for torture and normalizing it and turning it into objects that without context, we wouldn't know. So there's the, I think to me, the most powerful piece is the piece that's the least obvious, which is the water table torture. It's, it, it looks like a rattan lounge chair. It, uh, I mean, I think Rob actually made this comment to me that in some ways the pieces almost have an Ikea-ish color palette. They, they, yeah, yeah, they, they definitely do. They're ordinance. West Elm, crate and barrel kind of. Yeah. So it's a, it's this, you know, flat table with this, um, coopered bucket and a towel that hangs off the table. And without context, one wouldn't know this is where you strap people to and you simulate drowning. And some of the other objects like the pillory or the headstock, um, other objects, which I wasn't familiar with, but obviously once you know the context, you know that somebody's head goes in there or somebody's hands go in there and then they. So Eric, let's, let's back up a little bit. We're talking about the individual pieces, but yeah. Um, let's talk about the, maybe the, the germination of your thinking for this project and what, what the, um, what the objective of it is. You, you kind of nailed it. The, the title was obviously a play on extraordinary rendition and my thought of I, I like wordplay a mm-hmm. lot, um, and the the Bush era in particular was a uh, they, they were really good at kind of um, 
the euphemism, the, the creative euphemism, right? Like, um, what do we call this thing? Which is basically what, like you said, pulling somebody out of where they live, taking them somewhere around the world and torturing them until they, um, well, what turned out really didn't give them much information that was useful, but until they give us what we want or die. And so I was playing with that stuff. And this is sort of the first version. This is the first project I've done that really directly starts to play with the things that I studied in college. I have told you guys I was studying political science and international relations yeah. in college at the time, basically starting at 9-11. And I was involved in pro- big protests around going to war in 2003. And so this has always been in the back of my mind, bas- basically starting from Abu Ghraib, where we were torturing people in Iraq. So you literally started school like Two or three weeks before nine eleven. Yeah, like in August before nine eleven. Yeah, um, my I think it was my second week of school. I was in a work study job, and somebody came in and was like, at that point, they were like, "We're under attack." I was like, "I don't know what's happening," and we went from there. And I was two hours north of the city, so like one of my first friends in school, her dad was on the hundred and seventh floor. You know, it was like it felt very, very close to us, like very real and immediate. So this work, I, I, it's the most directly I've addressed any of that stuff, which is maybe it took me that long to be able to think about it. Well, I, I think that I think that's the process. You know, interestingly enough, right after 9-11, I got so many calls for artists to respond to 9-11. And, and my immediate response was, I have no capability of, yeah. of responding to 9-11 because I don't even think I've begun to digest this event. And I'm really dubious of any artist who can regurgitate something within the next week, month, or, or year about 9-11. I, I, yeah. Just a brief aside there. So I, so I actually started school as a creative writing major. And my, one of my poetry professors, this fantastic guy named Dennis Doherty, later on down the road, he told me that uh, he said something along the lines of the worst writing I've ever experienced is the work in the six months after 9-11. He said, maybe most important for those writing it, mm-hmm. but but some of the least well-processed and thought-out work I've ever had to deal with. And I that's stuck with me forever. Like you can't, you can't, like real immediate trauma is very hard to process into work that actually responds yeah. out in the world. And it is necessary. You can't, oh, yeah. you definitely don't want to do, discount that. Well, and it's a it's a it's an important but unimportant stepping stone. I mean, it's one of those things where you you go through the process of thinking about it, and then go like you said, like Wendy was telling you at the art. Yeah, that's not going anywhere. Time to move on. Yeah, and, and so like I think it may be very important for the maker or the producer of whatever work this is, but for the rest of the world, this you know it may not actually have the power it's meant to have. Yeah, it's catharsis for yeah, that person or a small group, but yeah, it's right. So ordinary rendition was um it's not really it's not about 9/11, but that's so the first piece was the waterboard. Um it's a Danish it's like this kind of Danish lounge. Um it's Danish cord um woven. Uh you kind of hit the nail on the head with the color pattern. I was really looking at like production hip but not super high-end furniture companies. You know, I had been looking at the, um, like thinking about like, okay, Ikea, but like one step up from Ikea, maybe the kind of West Elm or like, yeah. you know, I get I get these catalogs. Um, Blue Dot was something that actually was right. really rolling right. around in my head. Um, 
And at the same time that year in 2017, I was at the fairs in New York, the design fairs, uh, ICFF and wanted, and you know, the color scheme of the, of that year, I, the, this work uses, um, my variation on millennial pink, which was like, <laughs> people were writing about this color, like all the clothing companies were using it. And they were writing about this color. Like the guardian had a piece about millennial pink, like, it's this weird, like in between pink and kind of fleshy and kind of like beigey at times. Pepto bismol pink, kind of. Yeah, but like less poppy than that. Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of was. They were talking about like, does this does this represent like a kind of degendering? Like, what is this color that's like not a non color? It's like almost flesh of a certain type of flesh, but it's more like internal fleshy. Uh, and I was so I was kind of playing with like the the trendy color schemes and thinking about how trends work more generally. Like, okay, this is a stylish furniture idea. The the idea of populating your living room with these sort of status symbols of of a moment, right? Like we live, we surround ourselves with objects that are meant to tell the world something about ourselves. So this thought of like a living room set that at first glance is these kind of furniture objects, and then you're like, wait, but what is that? Um, what does that do? That's not a clothing rack. That is a pillory. A head goes in that. And then you start, suddenly start to think about like this push-pull of repulsion and attraction. We, all, we are like, as designers and makers, we're like obsessed with objects. And so we have this attraction to the kind of sexy object and this idea that you could look at it and suddenly feel not only a little disgusted, but also implicated. That was really important to me. Like we are a part of a process that has, has yielded some amazing things and some horrific tragedies of, of uh, human nature. I, I, I'll be completely honest. When I first got that catalog and looked at it, I was like, what the fuck is this dude making? Yeah. You, <laughs> you did it. You did it. I mean, cause I didn't know what to expect, Adam. And I looked at it and I was like, oh man, don't tell me he made all his stuff has like Rattan in it. And, and, but then I went further and to me that, that, that means I wasn't, I wasn't looking. I'll, 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 I will say that I just looked right past that and, and I saw what it was and I was, I was like, started reading and I was like, oh shit. Okay. Okay. Back up, Rob, back up. Well, the, the interesting. Interesting thing is my first response is because unfortunately I tend to look at pictures before I read. Yeah. And that's what I, that's exactly what I did. But I saw the, I saw the other, I saw the other objects and we'll let you describe them. I saw the other objects first. And to me, it was obvious what was going on here in, in the sense that you were trying to normalize these objects and put them in the context of fine furniture. Um, and then that immediately drew me to the, the water table. I mean, the uh, water torture lounge and yeah, waterboard. At, at waterboard. That's right. Waterboard. Yeah. yeah. Waterboard. Yes. Let's, let's use the correct term. And, it, and at that point, to me, there was no further need for context. I mean, it is the most furniture like of all the pieces, um, but I knew exactly what it was. And it's, it's an interesting process, but the other part of that process that really struck home to me was the notion of that these things were made by makers and the actual objects, the pillory or the waterboard table or any of these other objects of torture were made by makers and they required an incredible amount of thought. 
yet their ultimate purpose is so horrific that it just gave me this horrible visceral feeling. And I'll tell when I saw that, the first thing I did, the fir- my first response was I Googled the the electric, the Texas electric chair. Um, I think it's called Old Sparky. And because that was the first thing I thought of. And I I sent a picture of that to Rob and I said, this is it. And you if you know, if you look at that piece, old Sparky, it's a really well-built oak. Heavy oak, beautiful joinery. Beautiful joinery. It even has an ornate back on it. And you go, holy fuck. It's built to last. This piece only served only served one function to kill people. My, my comment was that it, yeah, it's it's an heirloom. Yeah. I mean, it's basically made like heirloom furniture. And it's- yeah. So I, I mean, so that's the I mean, not only have we taken these objects of torture and normalized them, but we've actually created a society where makers make these objects and it's OK. Right. So s- speak to all of that, Adam. Yeah. I mean, like, so there's there's sort of some layers of implication. I'm yeah. Interested. Yeah. Like as a as a consumer. I like I like sort of being held to account in how we think about the things we surround ourselves with. What are the histories of those things? What are the who made them? Do we know? Like, are they being made by slave labor? This kind of idea that like we buy things that act as status symbols to us, and that we that we just like to pretend that somehow like that's not a political action in itself. And then I like the idea of implicating the maker, like a very a, a probably skilled maker who would be in our guild mm-hmm. where we in a different time would have made the pillory for the, for downtown, right. For this, for this town square and can't necessarily distinguish those two things. Like it's, it was the same process. We sort of had to think about how long would it hold up? How would the joiner, you know, the same questions we use in every day, use every day when we're, when we're making things. Um, so the idea of this is sort of self-implication on a lot of levels. Like, especially me having created it. Like we're in a moment where we're having to think about our own role in a lot of really shitty histories. Mm-hmm. And in a way, this is me processing that for myself too. Like I, I'm not, I'm not separate from that either as a maker, as a, a person from my demographic, you know, I even think about my own role in my field, which is like, I represent the very demographic that has owned this field forever and is only recently starting to relinquish some some grasp over it, and and that all kind of came up in the making of it. So there's that part for me, but there's also the idea of the viewer, like, um, you know, Rob, your your comment is like, it's all it's my hope. I, I designed this catalog after a blue dot catalog. Basically, it's like yeah. the idea is that you could look through this and be like, okay, that's like I'm not, I don't, I I either like or don't like that furniture, but it's furniture. Yeah, and I've had curators, you know, like. I showed them the catalog and I had to say, actually, you should probably read the essay and had them like, I can tell from our conversation, it was like thrown under a stack. It was like, okay, I didn't realize he also made like Danish, the kind of quasi Danish modern furniture. And I, I really like the water holder. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you should probably look a little deeper into that because it's actually something else is going on there. And that, that moment of discovery and sudden realization was really important to this. And and Eric, what you're saying is interesting because if you see the Danish, the the waterboard first, I you really could be like, I guess he also has a line of furniture. Like I didn't realize that. But if you see, say, there is a whipping post, and that whipping post looks like kind of like 
got a kind of coat hangery thing, a kind of toilet plungery kind of form to it. They're all kind of playing off of at that moment, there were a lot of designers like Dutch designers in particular using these very thin line um, semi-spherical forms like all of the kind of formal language of this is around like what was happening at that very moment in kind of like mid-level design world. Um, you could totally overlook it, but if you start to look at the, like there's one called the garret, which is this thing that basically clamps around the head and the back of the neck and can be tightened, was used for things like torture to get information, but also was commonly used for women who um, there was a thing called a scold's bridal, which is very similar, which is like, women who were basically too talkative and gossipy would be forced to wear this thing that went cranked into their mouth and was like public shaming for having been too, too gossipy at best. And at worst was for you, if you thought were thought to be a witch and were forced to wear this thing. So it's like, I'm trying to look also at like the histories of objects that were used not for killing people, like for instance, with an electric chair, but for like, shame is really important to all of this stuff. It's actually not just about hurting, but about breaking someone down to a non-human status. Right. Which and it actually is another form of killing somebody because you've, you've, yeah. you've removed their humanity. And, and actually it's interesting to hear you say that some, you know, some curators didn't get it because I think that again speaks to what we talked about in, in our earlier conversation uh, about context and experience, because I, I, I you know, I saw, or, I saw the title ordinary rendition. I immediately thought extraordinary rendition. I saw the work and I said, this is about torture. I, in, and as I said, like most people, unfortunately, I look at pictures first and then read the text. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the leap was maybe 30 seconds. So if it's not within your experience, then you're not going to you're not going to look at it in the same way, because I actually didn't you know, I don't look at the blue dock catalogs. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I get them and I recycle them to speak to that, Eric. It, you know, it is you're you're kind of addressing a demographic to, you know, to to dig in a little bit further to talk about white privilege. Yeah. You know, it, it's really there. There, there's a slim line of people that are going to take those catalogs and and be familiar with that furniture. You know, once I started reading it, I was just like, boom! It hit me in the face to realize what you were talking about. It made me start to really think about my sense of place and where I am. I I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and have been. My mom's lived here since '95, but understanding kind of how you are through this work, understanding your relationship to Abu Ghraib and 9-11, I'm trying to, uh, it's urged me to start to open up and look at Charleston and yeah. being the slave center of the United States and the different elements of, of that in and around my existence here and understanding it and making sense of it. That's what I'm trying to find to making sense of that. And so you're digging through the layers, trying to figure this whole thing out and make sense of it. This thing is an expression of my own experience of something. So the use of the word ordinary, right? It's extraordinary rendition mm -hmm. turned to ordinary rendition. I, I'm thinking, like you said, Eric, about the everyday nature of these things and mm -hmm. what becomes ordinary in our world. And so I was sort of relating this also to like 
going back again to the kind of police brutality that's been happening in this country and this idea that suddenly like we're just watching people die all the time. And suddenly it's like there was a time where watching watching someone, well, maybe not die, but be beaten unmercifully would have made me sick. I mean, remember when we all saw Rodney King I be beaten and how how insane that was? And now it's just every day. It's like watching this stuff every day and like people actually spend their time on YouTube, like enjoying watching people just be hurt. Yeah. It's and so like this idea of like disgusting, the destruction of people's bodies being just a part of our visual intake every day. That's that other part of ordinary, this kind of like, it would just be in the living room. I don't know. Like I, you know, so they're all tied. Each of them is tied to a specific historical yeah. reference of a torture device. But I've also like, I've been the first, so the first person that I noticed following this work on Instagram, following me as a new follower after this work started was an S&M site. Okay. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> and it's not like it didn't cross my mind, but I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, these right. things are like flesh colored. They're, they're kind of hip. They're made for like kind of holding people in place. And so it got me a lot thinking about like, how how do different people think about pain and suffering and torture? And like all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's this other thing that's like a community that at its best is like it's a positive community, right? Like like hopefully like like in its in its good forms is like a community where people support each other and, and have yeah. positive sexual identity, right? But it's not what I was thinking about. But of course, this is like about like about this play between comfort and pleasure and pain and hurting people that I hadn't even thought of, but it really still ties into, into the ideas that I was playing with. It's like, where does this come mm-hmm. from? Where does, where does our, like, where is our comfort level? Well, it kind of also plays with perception. I mean, people are all going to perceive this differently, even though you, you have a certain intention with it and hope that people gather a certain thing from it and you leave it open obviously to interpretation, but different people perceive everything differently. Yes. Well, and 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 to me, that really begs the question. <laughs> it gets to the root of it. Why do we make things? We make things because we have to make things. We can't control other people's perceptions of the idea we make. You know, if somebody wants to view your object as a as an S M object, that that's that's fine. That's their perception. But it's yeah. it's uh, it's not because we got it wrong. I mean, right. it's because we had a concept and, and, and everybody else's experience and perception was different. In a way it ties, it ties back into what we were talking about with my other work. Like everybody comes to something with a different experience. So, and I can't, I can't control that. All I can do is hope to be able to harness that. Because that's all you can do as an artist. You can't sit there and hold their hand through the gallery and through yeah. reading the, your, or your catalog and, be like, yeah. this is exactly how I want you to think about my work. Yeah. It's not like Ai Weiwei is sitting there in the gallery telling me what to think about the lifeboat. You know, it's like, it, it's totally open. Well, that's the wonderful thing about art. So we'll have some images of uh, Adam's show, Ordinary Rendition, up on the website. And uh, thanks for going over the details with us. And hopefully everybody will learn and grow. And remember, always yeah. stay safe out there in the pandemic world, people. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. 
This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.